All right, so tonight, um, some people thought the, uh, the, the title was a little interesting. Matters of Theology Do Matter is uh, what I titled, titled tonight's uh, discussion. Um, you know, the, getting deep into God's Word is important. It's an important um, uh, topic. It's something that needs to be practiced. It's something that I think for um, for too long uh, churches have neglected. Um, you know, I think there's a movement of maybe coming back away from that. Um, but you know, there's the there's a point of debate um, um, about this. You know, there isn't universal um, agreement on this. You know, some churches, some Christians uh, believe that, you know, deep theology, the study of deep theology is something that, you know, really just belongs in academic circles. You know, that, that's for the seminaries, that's for the professors and the theologians. But what you need in church and what many Christians want to hear in church and what many pastors think that Christians need to hear in church is really just practical theology. You know, people just need to know how to live better. You know, they just need to know, you know, um, they, they need to be given uh, guidelines on how to improve their marriage. They need to be given guidelines on how to improve their parenting or how to raise their children or whatever the case may be, um, they really just want a list of do's. You know, like, here's, here's what you do. If you're struggling in your marriage, do this. If you're struggling in your parenting, do this. If you're struggling at work, do these things. Um, one way of talking about that, when you think about it, what, what really a lot of Christians want is legalism mm -hmm. from the church, from behind the pulpit. I say it regularly. Just give me a to-do list and make it all easier. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I know that's not correct. Right. Everyone, right. But it, it does like in certain moments very much just be able to do this. Yeah. So you said that most Christians want that. But do they want that because that's all they know because that's what they're receiving from the pulpit? Well it you know, it's it's sort of a double edged sword. Um if they, you know, it is what many Christians know, um, and that's what they're getting. Um, but to a large degree, the reason many pastors give that and provide that kind of message is because there is this desire out there to only have that. Um, in other words... Many Christians, and I can't say most, you know, I, I've not done a survey of them all, but many Christians, um, they don't want to hear the hard truths of Scripture. Um, you know, they'll, they'll say, I want to know all about God until you start to preach or teach something that rubs them the wrong way, and then, well, that's not what I came to church for. Um, and sadly, to a large extent, there's a lot of pastors who are concerned with uh, growing their churches. They're concerned with not running anybody off. And so they avoid the difficult 
um, passages. So they want the um, nuggets or the cherry-picked passages? Yeah. That I mean, when I was at the uh, conference, the fire conference, there was one pastor who, who shared with me that as, as a young believer, he attended a church where the pastor was preaching through the book of Romans. And when he got to Romans 9, he skipped the entire chapter. <laughs> and he actually even said it. We're just going to skip Romans 9. You know, there's, there's, there's no agreement on what Paul is talking about in Romans 9. So we're just going to move on to Romans 10, right? Um, because that can be a very difficult chapter for people to accept. I mean, yeah, even if you don't teach it, if you just read it carefully, Paul says things in Romans 9 that will just, you know, grabs your attention. Like, is he, is he saying what I really think he's saying? Um, and so there's, there's, there's pastors that believe that. There's churches that believe, you know, we just need to preach the gospel. Just stick to the gospel. Um, that's what's needed. And we, and, and, the whole purpose of church is evangelism and we invite our unbelieving friends and we bring them in so that the pastor can preach the gospel at them and uh, and hopefully get them saved. Um, well, isn't it called the Roman road for a reason? Right, <laughs> right, the Roman road. Um, I, remember, I remember having a professor in seminary who said he grew up in a church like that and he said the struggle that he had was after a while he began to realize every Sunday okay, I'm already saved, now what? Right? Because every Sunday, it's you got to be saved, you got to be saved, you got to be saved. It's a gospel message every Sunday. And you get to a point where you start to think, okay, I'm saved, now what? I mean, you're telling me to do something that I've already done. What? What is beyond this? Right? So, a lot of it comes down to, um, you know, do we see the importance of doctrine? Um, and I did put down, I did write a few notes for myself uh, on this topic. Um, one, as I was thinking through this, I remember listening, and I tried to find it. Um, I like to listen to the podcast, uh, The White Horse Inn, um, by Michael Horton. And he, he has a, a roundtable discussion with usually two or three other pastors or theologians. And years ago, this is probably two, three, four years ago when I first started listening to it, um, he was doing a segment on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And at the beginning of the podcast, um, he went to a, a large national evangelical pastors conference. And I was trying to find the podcast because I wanted to remember what conference this was, where was he? And I, I couldn't remember it and I couldn't find the podcast. Um, but I remember him saying, you know, this is a large, National Evangelical Conference, uh, hundreds and hundreds of pastors from all over the nation have come to attend this conference. And he went around asking all of these pastors two questions. One, what is the doctrine of justification? You know, um, what is that doctrine? Most of them were able to answer the question, but there was a few who struggled. Like, I didn't know how to explain it. Most of them were able to answer the question. But here's the really sad part. His second question was, how relevant is the doctrine of justification for the church? And most of them said, not very. You know, that's something that most of them had answers like, you know, that's something that you got to learn in seminary and it's, you know, it's the nuts and the bolts of theology, but it's really not something you ever want to preach from the pulpit. I mean, there's no real practical application 
to the doctrine of justification. Right. I was, I was shocked. I was shocked at how many of these evangelical pastors were saying, yeah, you just... There would be no evangelical right. church. There would be no church. Right. They have long forgotten Luther's, Luther's uh, famous quote, the doctrine of justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Mm-hmm. Right. Without that doctrine, there is no church. Um, it is the core of the gospel. And so when we talk about this topic, it really comes down to, I, th- I think, in my estimation, it's the debate of what is the purpose of church? Right? That, that's where it begins. Right? Why do we do church? What is the purpose of church? Because there are many you church. You mean Sunday morning? I mean church? Sunday morning. Yes, not 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 the church. Not the universal. Right, church, the local right. Church. The local church. Why do we gather on Sunday mornings? What is the purpose of that? And there are many who think that it's evangelism. Right. The purpose is to invite your unbelieving friends, um, and and let's give them the gospel. Um, you know, or. Uh, there's probably a segment that thinks that it's 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 a place to just be encouraged, right? This is where you want to come. You want to hear positive and encouraging messages. You want to hear you're fine, you're great, God loves you. Go out, be blessed. I'll see you next Sunday, right? And and just make people feel good about themselves, about their lives, and uh, so that they can get through another week and come back and just sort of. Uh, you know, be have their confidence or self esteem boosted again, or whatever the case may be. Um, or is the purpose of church the feeding of the sheep? Is church for the lost, or is it for the saints? And if it's for the saints, to what end? Is it just to lift their spirits, or is it to actually feed them and to teach them the word of God? Um, I think that that is what church is for. And for two reasons. One is historical. The other is theological. One, when we look at the, the, the New Testament church, the concept of the New Testament, the local church, the visible church gathering on Sunday mornings, you know, the New Testament Christians didn't just make that up. The New Testament church really grows out of the synagogue experience um, in the... Uh, um, not only the first century world, but um, post-exile, post-second uh, temple uh, Israel, um, meaning between, between exile and the time of Christ, um, the synagogue uh, comes into existence. Um, and according to uh, J- uh, Jewish uh, tradition, that if, if you had at least 10 Jewish men within a community, then you could have a synagogue. That was enough for a synagogue. And they would gather every every Sabbath day. Um, they didn't all travel to the temple. Uh, you only went to the temple for special uh, holidays. But by and large, throughout Israel, in every town, there were synagogues where families would gather. Men, women, the children would come. And what they did, by and large, it looked very much like a New Testament church. There would be the reading of scripture. They would unroll scrolls. They would read Isaiah. They would read the prophets. There would be prayers. They would be singing. They would sing the Psalter. They would sing the Psalms, right? Um, there would be um, a message that was delivered. There would be a sermon of some sort. Oftentimes, the rabbi would do it. 
but if not the rabbi, another man in the church who would prepare a lesson before coming. Everything that they did in synagogue is what we see us doing in the New Testament church. So post-ascension, as Paul goes about and establishes these churches, he's really borrowing the model of the synagogue, that this is what we do in this New Testament church. We gather, we sing, we pray, we, uh, we, we worship, we take the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Um, there's the reading of scripture and then there's the delivering of a message. So knowing that the New Testament church comes out of the whole practice of the synagogue, who went to the synagogue? Did they invite their Gentile neighbors? No. Right? It was just Jews. Jewish families, right? The synagogue was for the people of God. It was for the Jewish. It was for Jews. If you weren't a Jew, you're not there. So as Paul borrows from that model to establish his New Testament churches, churches are primarily designed for the people of God uh, to come and to learn about God and to to be taught um, the things of God. And so hence... The church is primarily for the saints. And you see them actually um, doing that. You see them gathering. Uh, so, for example, we look at places like Acts chapter 3. This is after you know Pentecost. Holy Spirit comes down. Uh, we're told in verse... 41, 3,000 souls were added to their number. And then verse 30, 42 says, Wait, or I'm Acts sorry, Acts chapter 2. Okay. Acts chapter 2. Acts 2.42. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Hence, everything that they were doing in synagogue, they now begin doing in the New Testament church. Um, we see in Acts chapter 20. Verse 7. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with him, intending to depart on the next day. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. So that became their practice, Sunday, the day that Christ rose from the dead. They would gather on, on, uh, on the Lord's day. Uh, for fellowship, the breaking of bread, devoting himself to the apostles' teaching. Staying in that same chapter, you look at verse 20. Um, da, da, da. Mm, 24. So chapter 20, verse 24. Paul is talking to the uh, the uh, the elders in Ephesus as he's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows that something bad is going to happen in Jerusalem. He may never see them again. So this is his farewell address. And he says to them, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. 
Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Why? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul says, I believe that I'm never going to see you again, but he says, I am innocent of the blood of all of you. In other words, I have done my very best and, and my conscience is clean because I have not shrunk back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, Paul taught them. He left no stone unturned when it came to teaching them about God, teaching them theology. Um, and clearly, you know, when we when we wrestle with what, you know, are these, you know, when you when you hear these pastors at the conference say, well, there's no real practical aspect to the doctrine of justification, they obviously have forgotten the fact that the letters, the books of the Bible from which we get these doctrines were written to who? To the people. To churches, right? They were written to churches. The book of Romans, that whole book is filled with the doctrine of justification. Mm. It's written to a church. Paul, Paul himself clearly thought this is practical, mm -hmm. right? The doctrine of justification has enormous practical implications in the Christian life. Uh, when you look at all of his letters, I mean, you look at uh, the book of Ephesians written to a church. I mean, there is a book that is heavy with uh, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of union with Christ uh, is huge. Uh, you look at the letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae, it is huge with the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Um, and so Paul spends a lot of times, a lot of time on, on heavy theology, writing these letters to churches. So he clearly believed that this was tremendously important. You know, it's interesting you say that. It's it's true because the pastoral epistles don't have the theology that the ones to the churches do. I mean, mm -hmm. they have it, but not to the extent. Mm -hmm. Romans is deep. Yeah, Hebrews <coughs> to a church, not right. to not that Paul wrote it, but right. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah, Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, first and second Paul Corinthians, the book of Galatians, the doctrine of justification, right. hard and heavy. The book of Galatians, written to the church in Galatia, right? So Paul did not hold back heavy theology to the church. So why do so many Christians today think, you don't need theology in the pulpit, right? You don't want to give theology to the average person coming into the church. Paul did. I mean, he didn't hold back from that. He obviously felt that it was necessary so we're still on the idea that this is the purpose of church. Um, you look at Hebrews chapter 10. And that would have been like the churches like Corinthians and Galatia and Ephesians. They would have been Gentile churches, right? Yeah. Yep. So it's not even like these are like old-timey believers or anything. Right. Friends. Right. Like Those are predominantly Gentile churches. Don't you know they needed some doctrine? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, the purpose of church is not evangelism, although evangelism to some extent, should take place within the church. Um, 
you know, uh, Spurgeon's famous quote, he, he always said that when he preaches, he starts with the text and makes a beeline for Christ, hmm. right? I mean, in the end, you want to ultimately direct people's attention toward Christ. You want to point them to Christ. And so it's evangelistic to some extent, but ultimately it's, it's about feeding the sheep. It's about getting them to know God. Right. Let us. This is a book written to believers. Let us consider how to stir up one another believers to love and good works. How do we do that? By not neglecting to meet together. Um, also, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. And that's the whole point of church. Right. We come to church to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming uh, fire. And so now again, this is not to say what is different is that when you go back to the synagogue, uh, only only Jews or those who had, you know, um, converted to, to Judaism, um, you know, were, were expected to, uh, to be there in attendance. Um, Although they, they would allow God-fearers to attend, um, meaning those were Gentiles who had a high regard for Judaism, were maybe considering it, were wanting to learn about it. Um, we see that even today with, with uh, religions that you would typically think are hostile um, to Christianity like Islam. If a Christian goes to a mosque and says, you know, I'd like to attend, I'm just curious. I'm not a Muslim, but I'm curious. They will generally allow you to come in. You know, they want you to follow certain uh, protocol, but they'll let a non-Muslim uh, attend a mosque and, you know, see what goes on. This was true of the synagogue as well. But for the most part, um, they weren't out trying to get their Gentile friends to come, right? If they chose to come, great. But primarily it was for the Jewish people to encourage one another to learn about God, to review the law, and all that, and all that. But nonetheless, um, when you look at the church, Paul assumed that there would likely be unbelievers there. We get that from First uh, Corinthians chapter twelve. Um, fourteen, actually, First Corinthians fourteen, where he gets to talking about the gifts. Um, and then he says in verse 22, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his hearts are disclosed. The point is that Paul grants that there may be times when unbelievers are going to attend church. And so Paul says, you need to be aware of that, right? And so that's why, you know, that's part of why, you know, there should be some evangelism to some degree. I typically will do that when fencing the table with the Lord's Supper. Wait, um, did you say 12? I said 12 initially, and then I corrected myself. And I was looking at 12, 14, and I was going, looking at that. First, oh, okay. First Corinthians 14. 22. Yeah, 22 to 24. Okay. 
um, Paul Paul assumes that there is likely going to be you know unbelievers who are going to be in attendance there. So we need to be mindful of that, not just in terms of our behavior, but what a great opportunity to share the gospel. Um, but it's not the whole thing shouldn't be the gospel. The whole thing shouldn't be evangelism, because primarily church is about teaching the whole counsel of of God uh, to uh, to the people of God. This is because so so one church is about coming together and learning about God, and this goes back to the idea of the biblical truth that ultimately God creates because he desires to be known. God desires to be glorified, and he is glorified by making himself known. That's why God creates and then reveals himself to Adam and Eve in the first place, because God did not have to do that. He didn't have to create in the first place, but even in creating Adam and Eve, God is invisible. He could have remained invisible to Adam and Eve, and they could have stood in the garden wondering, why are we here, and who are you, and what are we supposed to be doing, right? But God reveals himself to humanity because he desires to be known. The more we know God, the more God is glorified, the more we realize how magnificent and how uh, glorious he He really is. Um, because there is nothing on earth that is more desirous than to know God. Yes. Maybe off topic, and feel free to tell me you'll answer later. <laughs> in the garden, yeah, Adam and Eve, and they were perfect. Could they see God? They could only see God if He made Himself known to them. Right? Would it be like a Shekinah glory, like Moses saw? So now, somehow they did. Somehow God revealed Himself to them, um, but we don't know how. Um, it, it, the text just doesn't make it clear to us. Um, but somehow they were able to com- speak with God almost face to face. Um, but it's a complete mystery as to how he did that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but had God not revealed himself to them, they never would have seen God. God is invisible. God is spirit. He has no body. God does not have a body until the incarnation of Christ. Um, and so God creates and reveals himself to creation, to humanity, because he wants to be known. He wants us uh, to know him. And that is because there is nothing more glorious than to know God. You know, this is, this is the goodness of God. God desires to share with us the greatest good that can be conceived in all of creation. And that being God himself. There is nothing more delightful there's nothing more beautiful there's nothing more glorious than god himself and that's what god desires to share with humanity we look at places like psalm 16 for example psalm 16 psalm of david one of my favorite psalms In verses uh, 5 and 6, David writes, The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. 
The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's talking about God. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion. He's, he, in other words, he's talking about um, a plot of land. He's sort of using the, 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 the illustration of a plot of land to talk about God, right? In the ancient days, that's what every man desired. That's what every family desired is to find this beautiful plot of land, you know, this beautiful valley with the river running through it with lush soil where you could grow amazing crops and, and everybody wanted the best plot of land in wherever it is they were settling down. And David says, the Lord is my chosen portion. Right? The Lord is my chosen portion. The lines for me have fallen in pleasant. What does he mean by the lines? The boundaries, the, the boundaries of my lot, which is God. If God is my lot, then he is saying, the lines have fallen for me in beautiful places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David recognizes that if I have God, I've got more than 99% of the world could ever possibly have, right? Lines, my, I, he has been blessed amazingly. Then flip over and listen to what David says in uh, Psalm 27. That is such a contrast though, back in with Abraham and Lot, where Lot saw the land and mm -hmm. saw the beauty of the land and that was his desired portion, mm -hmm. right? Just kind of a right. the flip side of that. Right, and it shows the humility of Abraham as well. Um, because even though um, Abraham was the one that God called, he allows Lot to choose, right? And, uh, and and where he chose was looked good. And Abraham says, you know, you can you can take it, right? If if that will bring peace to our families, I will give you whatever whatever choice you want. And it shows the humility of Abraham. But you look at Psalm twenty-seven again. David writes in verse four. One thing have I asked of the Lord, one thing that that will I seek after, and this is it, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. There is nothing in this world that is more beautiful, more precious, more glorious than God himself, right? Um, and so, and that is what we were created for. We were created to know God in all of his beauty, in all of his glory, in all of his, in all of his fullness. And so God desires for us to know him and we should want to know God accurately and fully for at least five reasons that I came up with. The first is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 13. Paul writes... If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. 
In other words, Paul realized that some people thought he, he was out of his mind. And he says, if I am out of my mind, it's, it's for the sake of God. And if I'm in my right mind, it's for your sake. But then look, look at the reason that he gives for his behavior. For or because the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls my behavior, Paul says. The love of Christ dictates how I behave and how I think. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, Paul was driven by the love of Christ. Christ's love for him compelled Paul to love Christ supremely. You know, Paul of all people, I mean, he calls himself the chief among sinners. Uh, he still wrestles with the idea that he persecuted the church of Christ, even put Christians to death. And when, when Paul realized that Christ died on the cross for his sins, he was so overwhelmed by God's love and amazing grace that it drove him to want to know Christ fully, to want to know God fully. What kind of a God would do this for me. Um, Paul wanted to know God. And so one reason is that theology matters and we should desire to know theology, to study theology, to hear theology being taught is because Christ died for us. What kind of a God would do that for us? How does he think? Second, no, no, you are absolutely right. Um, Another is simply to display our love for Christ, right? Um, because what does Jesus say in John fourteen fifteen? I quote that verse a lot because it's one of my favorites. John fourteen fifteen, Jesus says, "If you love me, you'll keep my commandments." Right? I quote that verse a lot. Love for God demonstrates itself in obedience. Love for Christ, because when we love Christ, when we love God, then there is just desire to not to not want to displease him to not want to dishonor him right so but if you're going to live in such a way that honors him and pleases him and glorifies him then you ha it, it begs the question what does he want from me how does he want me to live <coughs> what how does he want me to behave what does he expect of me what's that Micah 6-8 right Micah 6-8 now I have that song stuck in my head. Right. Yeah. He has, you right. Mercy. He has shown you, oh man, what the Lord requires of you. Do you remember? He has shown me. You don't remember that? It's old, Mar 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 old Maranatha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, 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 you know, you can't obey what God commands if don't you don't him. study scripture, if you don't study theology. And this is where we sometimes get confused that theology isn't just the study of God proper. It's not just the study of the Trinity. It's not just the study of, you know, the, the, the deity and the humanity of Christ. It's not just the study of the virgin birth. It is the study of biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, parenting, work, um, uh, civil government, What's that? <laughs> you know, civil, civil government. It's, 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 
it's everything. God has expectations in every area of life. How do we relate to the government as Christians, right? Um, that matters to God. Um, and we can't understand those things rightly if we don't understand God proper. Right. Correctly. Yeah. If we don't understand his, his holiness, his, you know, all of the things that he is, his sovereignty, all of, if we can't understand, you can't have one without the other. You can't so have you one. you don't really have a New Testament if, if you just, you just do what popular thing is. Right. That you remove the New Testament. You do. You remove the New Testament. I mean, it's gutted. I don't know what's the proper mm. word for it, but you don't have anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no substance. There's no substance. So I was you know. reading in my quiet time this morning. Um, just I like to read when I do the, after I finish the Bible. I like to read the New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp. Mm-hmm. I just I like the way he writes. And he was talking this morning, kind of like what you're saying. But he was talking about to know God rightly is to understand that God is a God of discipline, right. and that He is not a God of discipline because He thinks we're doing bad and because we're doing wrong. Because if we were in Christ. Christ paid the sin. God doesn't see us as sinful creatures anymore because God has atoned right. for that sin. Right. What he sees us as is as his children. Mm-hmm. He needs his loving discipline to guide us and to not to correct us, but right. to move us in a forward manner because left to ourselves in discipline, what do we do? We sit, we pout, we get mad because we're like, you know, you hate me, that was mean, and blah, 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 blah. And he was saying the same thing, but to know God rightly is to know God in all of his attributes. And one of his greatest attributes is to discipline those he loves so that they become the perfect image of his love for us. And I just thought that was pretty... Yeah, I mean, Hebrews Hebrews 12, I mean, God disciplines us because he loves us, because he wants to produce righteousness in us. And uh, and it's not always pleasant. And the author of Hebrews says that, right? Right. Uh, but then he also says, but what child did not respect his father when disciplined? Because, you know, we understand that parents do that because they care about us. Same thing with God. God disciplines us because he loves us. And that was the reference that yeah. he used was the Hebrews 12. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and you can't appreciate that you know, the discipline of God, if we don't fully understand God, right? If we don't understand what God is trying to do, if we don't understand the doctrine of sanctification and how sanctification works. Um, and yet, so oftentimes, there are many Christians who, those words that I throw out there, they have no idea what they mean. Um, and they, they don't know how it works because they've, they've just never been taught. They've always just been given the surface. They've been given the gospel their whole life, where they've just been given a list of practical, you know, do's and don'ts, and they're really not knowing God. But in not knowing God fully, they are they are being robbed of knowing the most glorious thing there is to know who is God Himself. Right? Most people are content with just stopping at forgiveness, right? Yeah, and just accepting the forgiveness and going, "Oh, I'm forgiven." But I mean, it's like, yeah, you know, it's like. We just kept to keep moving right. forward, and right. it's hard. Sanctification is yeah. hard. It's a messy road. It is. It is a messy road, you know. And even the doing of theology, I mean, you know, there, there's lots of different reasons. I, I think part of it, um, people don't want to get into the deep truths of Scripture, is because it's hard. It, it's, 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 it's mental work. work. 
right? And and people, they just want to sort of check out mentally, you know. I've been thinking all week long at my job. When I come to church, I don't want to have to think some more. And then there's me. But, but, you know, we serve a thinking God, right? We serve a God who is complex. And, um, and so he wants us to think. He gave us a mind to, to work with, to ponder him and to seek to understand him. The other reason I think is because the closer you look into the things of God, ultimately, you're going to end up bumping up against things that kind of rub you the wrong way, right? And it's easier to avoid those things uh, if you don't know about them, right? I want to be able to plead ignorance. So the little I know, the better off I am. And uh, But that's that's the attitude of someone who doesn't fully appreciate what Christ has done for them. Because when you fully appreciate what Christ has done for you, there is this natural desire to want to know this God who would do this for me. Um, you know, a, 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 a third reason to want to pour ourselves into uh, the oh, wait, deep truths of Scripture. Number two, number two was I'm sorry. to okay. demonstrate our love for Christ. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry. And number three is to be God's friend. And the other one I always quote with John fourteen fifteen is the flip side, which is John 15, 14. Huh. It's easy to remember, huh. right? John 14, 15, mm-hmm. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the other side of that coin is John 15, 14, where Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command, hmm. right? Um, so it's, it's interesting that even though we are saved by faith alone, right? Those verses cannot be used to teach legalism. Um, our works do not get us into heaven whatsoever. But our works, how we live our lives, demonstrate whether or not we truly do have faith in Christ. They demonstrate, and this is what Jesus is saying ultimately, how you live your life demonstrates whether or not you truly are my friend. You are my friend, Jesus says, if you do what I command. So those who don't, don't really care, are not friends. Truly, They're not truly in a relationship, a covenantal relationship with Christ. Those who are in a covenantal relationship with Christ want to do what he commands. Therefore, they want to study this because they want to please him. What does, what does my friend Jesus expect of me? So I'm going to pour over this to learn what Jesus expects so that I can do it and and live it out. Um, The fourth reason is to be wise. Um, Corbin and I just talked about this today. It was fresh on my mind. Um, Wisdom. I mean, who in this room doesn't want wisdom, right? We all want to be wise um, because we understand that wisdom... If you gave it a simple definition, wisdom is simply uh, always doing what is right and best and beneficial. Right? We always desire, we all want wisdom in relationships. We want wisdom at work. We want wisdom with dealing with our boss or our coworkers or dealing with our children. Right? We want wisdom with dealing with our neighbors. We want wisdom to say the right words at the right time in the right way with the right 
uh, voice inflection. Um, and, and those who possess greater wisdom will have a tendency to do that more often, to say the right thing in the right way at the right moment. Um, those who struggle with wisdom or lack wisdom are the ones that just consistently do foolish things and they make foolish decisions and they say foolish things uh, at the wrong time to the wrong people in the wrong way and then they regret it later but you can't go back and you can't right you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube right i mean it's <laughs> once it's out there it's, it's out there um and so i know that everybody in this room desires wisdom lord help me to just do things right i know help, right <laughs> help me to not live a life of regrets um and so you know well where does that come from well look at proverbs proverbs 4 those of us that are unwise there's grace for that too. amen he knows we're but dust amen there's grace for that proverbs chapter 4 verses 5 to 9 get wisdom i mean strong language get wisdom whatever you do get insight do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth do not forsake her that is wisdom she will keep you Right? She will guard you. Wisdom will guard you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Right? <laughs> so, here's where, here's where, in other words, he's saying, here's where wisdom begins, recognizing you need to get wisdom. Right? <laughs> it's kind of like, right? The, what do they say in, 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 in AA? Right? The first step in the right direction is admission. Right? Mm -hmm. The first step to recovery is admitting that you have a problem. The first step to getting wisdom is acknowledging, I need it, right? So the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight, right? Whatever you pursue in life, prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She, wisdom, will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. So, you know, here we have um, the author of, of Proverbs uh, basically just saying, look, what, whatever you pursue in life, pursue wisdom above all else, right? Pursue wisdom more than you pursue success or wealth or whatever else. Above anything, he says, chase after wisdom. Um, and how do we define wisdom then? Uh, or what is wisdom? Well, Job 28, 28. That's always an easy one to remember as well. Job 28, 28. Job is wise. And what does he say in Job 28, 28? And he said, and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. So wisdom is to fear God, right? It is to fear him in the sense of reverencing him. Uh, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, right? Offer to God acceptable worship uh, with fear and reverence for our God is a consuming fire. Um, it is to reverence him, 
It is also to be afraid of him to an extent. We, we should be afraid, right? This is a God who can turn you into a greasy spot with the blink of an eye. Um, you know, we, we should have a healthy fear of God that when we do wrong, if we're a believer, he is going to pull us through a knothole backwards. And it's not going to be pleasant. Um, to, <laughs> she's like, I'm visualizing that. I haven't heard that in a long time. That's all. Um, so there should be a healthy fear of God. And Job says that wisdom is fear. The wise person fears God. The wise person says, I am going to study this book. So that I know what God wants from me. And I am going to try my darndest to live it out. Why? Because I fear God. That's a wise person. Um, you know, because, yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's, 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 it's not a wise, uh, chihuahua who picks a fight with a rhinoceros, right? Barking at his heels. You, you think to yourself, that is one dumb animal, uh, who's going to die really soon, right? And yet, that's what, that's what humans who live in disobedience to God, that's exactly what they're like. They're like the chihuahua picking a fight with an elephant. I mean, not smart. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, and to turn from evil is understanding. But here's what's really amazing about this, is that when you, you see the author, Proverbs 4, whatever you chase after, Chase after wisdom, right? Yeah. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But now turn to First Corinthians chapter one. Chapter one, verse twenty-two. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to, the, to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Look at verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God. If wisdom is defined as always doing what is right, always knowing the right thing to do and the right thing to say and the right way to say it, right? Then Jesus is the wisdom of God personified. Jesus is the wisdom of God incarnate. And so when the proverb says, pursue after wisdom, hmm. Paul would say, chase after Christ. You want wisdom? Pursue after Christ with everything within you. Chase after him. Run after him. Strive to know him. Strive to be like him. And that's wisdom. Chasing Christ is chasing after wisdom. Um, because he is the wisdom of God revealed to humanity. Thus, here's the fifth reason. So the fourth was to be wise. And the fifth is to have the mind of Christ, Philippians chapter 2. The fifth reason we ought to pour over God's word, we ought to pour into deep truths of scripture, we ought to 
uh, embrace uh, deep theology and doctrinal truths is because, as we see in uh, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, have the mind of Christ. Think the way Christ thinks. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he he puts forward Christ as the quintessential example of uh, servant humility. Here was Christ who was willing to step out of the glory of heaven, take on human form, become a servant for us, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And Paul says, that's what we ought to do. That's what we should be like. But where does that begin? It begins with what he says in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. Have the mind. If you want to live like Christ, you have to think like Christ. And I promise you, Christ had the greatest theological mind that ever walked the face of the earth. Right? He was theologian uh, par none. I mean, he, he wrote the book. He wrote the book <laughs> Literally. Right? Literally. I mean, he was a walking systematic theology. Um, <laughs> if you want to behave like Christ, you have to think like Christ. And, you know, and that's nothing new. I mean, you look at um, Hollywood actors, and I don't really follow them anymore, but years ago, I was an unbeliever. I used to. I would read, watch interviews, and I, I would follow actors. And um, one thing I remember them saying, especially when they played like a difficult role that they may have won an Oscar for, you'll hear them say things like, how did you prepare for the role? Well, I spent a lot of time reading biographies on this person. Or, or if, I, if I played a crazy person, you know, I spent time in an insane asylum or, or whatever, trying to, trying to get inside the mind of these people. Because great actors understand, if I'm going to act like a particular person, i got to figure out how to think like them. If I can think the way they think, then I can behave the way they behave. They get it. Right, right, to their own detriment. Paul is really saying the same thing. If you want to be like Christ and act like Christ, which is wisdom personified, right? Wisdom. If you want to be like Christ, you've got to learn to think like Christ. And the way to think like Christ is to pour yourself into this book and to study it and to figure out what went on inside the mind of Christ. And then that will begin to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will begin to live like Christ. So at the end of the day, matters of theology do matter. They really matter. Um, people may not like it. They may get lost in some of the you know, sermons or whatever the case may be. But the idea is that this stuff is important. It's a, it's a way to love God. It's a way to love God, yeah. yeah. And it's the way he wants to be loved. Mm. You know, sometimes we want to love people the way we want to be loved. Mm. When it's different. Yeah. Because again, you know, we even see, we see that the unbelieving world does that, right? Like, like people who are, who are fans of a particular actor or singer, 
they can tell you like everything and anything about mm-hmm. that person, yeah. right? Oh, you know, he did this and he did that. He was born here and he's got this many kids and, and, and they know all of it. And you're just thinking, I don't care. <laughs> no, it's just like, I feel dumb. You know? <laughs> Yeah. I don't know the name of this well, actor. And this yeah. Right? But they're infatuated with this person. Why? Because they love this person. It's sadly, there's a lot of Christians who don't do even half of that amount of work. My husband probably would love me to love him like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> would it be wrong yeah. to say to them that the translation also matters greatly to the oh, you're sure. reading? Because, I mean, like, Eric, I'm getting him a new Bible. He loves the ESV, but we have a one-year chronological, not a chronological, but a one-year read through the Bible, uh-huh. and he's wanting to do that, but it's the New Living Translation, and when I read it, I mean, it just seems so, I don't hate to use the word yeah. watered down, but it's just too, um, con- yeah, yeah, that's a good word. I mean, it's just right. too conversational right. instead of. Well, it's a, it's, right. That is probably what you're right. thinking. Yeah. It's a simplification of it. Right. Yeah. Well, it's called a, it's a thought translation. Yeah. And, uh, and what that means is that they look at each sentence in the Greek and they basically ask themselves, what is the thought? What is the idea being communicated by this sentence? And then how do we communicate that idea in English in the best possible way? So they're not striving for accuracy. It's a, it's a thought translation. Um, you know, and so, you know, there's, 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 there's very few that strove for word for word translation. They strove for accuracy. And those are, again, it's New American Standard, the ESV, uh, the New King James, um, and the King James, but it's just New King James is easier for English readers. Um, you know, those and the old, uh, uh, American Standard Bible, like the 1901 American Standard Version would strive for accuracy word for word. Um, and so, yeah, I think translation matters as well. Um, you know, if you, if you can't read Greek or Hebrew yourself, then the next best thing is to get an English version that is pretty close and pretty accurate if you really want to know God rightly and know him fully. Um, and you don't want to miss out because there is nothing better than to know God. You know? So... Yeah, so this is an you know an important topic, and again, this kind of goes back to when we started this series of discussions. I said that I was picking topics that I wanted to define our church, and that's why I chose the topics that we've been going through. And this is something that I want to define our church. That we're a church that that wants to get into the deep things of Scripture. Uh, that doesn't shy away from. Uh, deep theology, deep doctrinal truths, because we want to fully know God because it does matter. Um, not just to have head knowledge, it matters in terms of sanctification. It transforms our lives, right? Pursue wisdom, which means to pursue Christ. And Paul says, if you want to be like Christ, you've got to have the mind of Christ. And if you're going to have the mind of Christ, you got to try to think the way Christ thought. And Christ had a very very theological mind. So yeah. Well, why don't we close in a let me close in a word of prayer? Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, we thank you for revealing yourself to humanity. 
Uh, Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself uh, through your word, uh, not just in general revelation through creation, but special revelation through your word and, and making yourself known to us. But even, even beyond that, uh, revealing yourself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And uh, we thank you, Lord God, for that. We pray that you would increase our hunger and our desire for your word to spend time in it, uh, not just um, not just uh, skimming over the surface of it, uh, but really digging deep into it, Lord God, and uh, that we might know you, that we might become more like your son, Jesus Christ, that we might uh, live a life that give you, gives you honor and glory and praise as you are so richly deserving of. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.